0: Good morning. My name is Kylie, and I'll be reading the teaching text today. The teaching text for today is in Jeremiah 6.16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the word of the Lord, word of God, for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Hey, y'all, good morning. Come on. Good morning. Oh, I'm so happy to see all of you. You know, you've, you've crammed in like sardines, um, and we're at this place where I'm a little bit curious about how space is going to work out in the next handful of months. So I've just decided in this moment to take a flash poll. Uh, I think it was on March 29th, the whole state was available to get the COVID vaccine, so the world's kind of opening up again. You may have seen Mayor Bynum saying he's going to let the mask mandate expire at the end of this month. I'm just curious, by show of hands, if you are feeling socially insecure, you can close your eyes. By show of hands, how many of you would say, I feel comfortable dropping the every other row thing? You would raise your hand to say, I am comfortable. Okay. I'm going to say that's a strong majority, and that's a good data point to take it to a board meeting today. So, Okay. Friends, I'm so delighted that you're here. Hi, neighbors. I'm so delighted that you're here today. I hope that in coming today that you are among friends, or maybe you're here today and you are feeling a little bit uh, nervous, you don't know anybody here. You walk in and you think everybody is already best friends and you're the one person who's the odd person out. Uh, You're not. I don't know if in coming here today um, you're, you're feeling just really joyful and encouraged, or maybe you're coming in and feeling beaten up by life, as that sometimes happens. I don't know if uh, you're here and you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you totally disagree with us. But I just want to say to each and every one of you, it's not a mistake that you're here. The Holy Spirit has been the one at work bringing you here, drawing you not only to like church, but to like God's people, and, and specifically to, to the person of Jesus Christ who loves you, who's pulling for you even right now. So in the name of Jesus Christ, to every one of you, I just want to say you're welcome, and I'm so glad that you're here. Well, Kyle, just Kyle, uh, God bless you. I asked him like four seconds before service started to read Scripture. Um, I'm going to ask you sometime too. But uh, Kyle read for us what's been the theme passage of Scripture for us so far this year in 2021 from Jeremiah chapter 6, and it introduces us to the theme of the ancient path. The ancient path is a manner of being in the world. It's, it's a way of pursuing wisdom. It's, it's not saying that, that novelty is all that it's cracked up to be. We recognize that all that is old is not wisdom, and all that is new is not necessarily progress. But it's saying, what's the way of faithfulness for us? As we started the year, we we acknowledged that that the way of faithfulness begins with this recognition that God is God, God, and we are not. Excuse me. We started the book of Genesis looking for, like, where are signposts pointing toward the ancient path? In the very beginning of the Bible, we see this foundational wisdom that God authored everything. The the author of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the ancient path begins with this recognition that God is God and we are not. That God alone has the authority as the author of life to determine what's truly right and good. We learn that the way of faithfulness requires this willingness to separate oneself from the crowd by, by willingly taking ourselves off of the popular path, which means we may find ourselves at times in lonely territory. It requires exercising the courage both to believe and to ask the difficult questions about our beliefs. The ancient path invites total trust. It often doesn't feel like victory. It often doesn't feel like winning. It more often feels like limping forward. And because we're following a path unknown, it requires us to adopt a spirit of adventure and actively reject a spirit of anxiety. And ultimately, it's a path that's leading to greater intimacy with and submission to Christ our King. Now, I would just say in all candor, I think that you and I know few people who are actually on the ancient path or maybe perhaps more fair to say you and i know few people who have made it far who have advanced into maturity in going down the ancient path because to resolve to be a person who's going down the ancient path uh, and to be shaped according to the ancient path requires a person to just operate in a completely different headspace to live and to breathe within a different mental and spiritual and cultural ecosystem And to exercise uncommon grit. Because because all of the forces of the universe are working against a person's resolve, resolution to walk down the ancient path. The forces of opposition are pervasive and invasive and enticing. It's akin to resolving to be the last tree standing in a world of, of machines bent on leveling the forests. But it's better to be a tree than to be a machine. It's better to limp down the ancient path toward wisdom than to sprint down the popular path toward self-destruction. It's better to be thought an odd duck these days than what constitutes normal, to be constantly outraged and perpetually depressed, to be connected to all but in friendship with none, claiming enlightenment but living in the dark. I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, something that Jesus said, a, a tool for distinguishing different kinds of people and evaluating different ways of living. He said quite simply, by their fruit you will recognize them. I believe that in the age to come, one of the greatest apologetics or defenses of the Christian faith will be the degree to which we can say like we are embodying the fruits of the Spirit. A charitable, a generous nature, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I also think that the absence of these things will invalidate what we believe to be true in in the eyes of the world. The absence of these things will reveal that some people who claimed to be Christians actually weren't. They may have been just culture warriors conveniently wearing this religious garb. But as I think about the imagery of the fruits of the Spirit, the longing of my heart is for the people of our church together and following down the ancient path to be like an orchard of the fruits of the Spirit, an orchard offering a world that is deeply malnourished the opportunity to find true sustenance in Christ and true friendship in community together. We are not there yet, and I am not there yet, but God help us. Today we're transitioning from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. We've done three months in the book of Genesis, and today we're going to start in the second book of the Old Testament. And today we're going to explore an attribute of God as we've been picking up signs and clues about the nature of the ancient path. We're going to explore an attribute of God that is hiding in plain sight, one that can at times be infuriating and frustrating, but one that we need to come to terms with and accept and to trust. And it's simply that God is utterly unhurried. God is utterly unhurried. And the corollary reminder of this is as God is in the world, so he invites us to be. Today, God is utterly unhurried. Well, today, uh, as we're looking at Exodus, let me get you in the middle of the story. As we end Genesis, Abraham's family has moved to Egypt because of a famine, a regional famine, and the family is multiplying. They're multiplying like rabbits, becoming so numerous that the pharaohs are starting to perceive them as a threat, and so rather than be overtaken by them, they enslave them under slave masters. And centuries pass, and it seems to be the case that God's plans and His purposes for this family, His plans to bless the whole world, have been halted. I'm going to read Exodus 2.23. Actually, we should have that. There we go. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. But Moses was tending the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Well, though we've only advanced four chapters since my last sermon on the ancient path, uh, four centuries have passed. It's four centuries of birthing and growing and multiplying and living and dying in Abraham's family. And life gets increasingly complex and difficult for the people of Israel as they're subjected to forced labor in Egypt. 400 years of slavery is a lot of years of slavery. It's a lot of months. It's a lot of days. And the text tells us that that God heard the groaning of the people, and we wonder, did it take 400 years of days of groaning for the message to get through? Why did God wait so long to respond? Well, finally, the text introduces us to, you know, the answer to the people's prayers. Moses is born. You can read Moses' birth story in Exodus chapter 1. And Moses, by luck or divine intervention, is raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised as a child of privilege. And as he comes of age, he's leveraged to to use his royal upbringing for the good of his true family, of the people of, of, of Israel. But a day comes when young Moses, he's a teenager in his early 20s, I'm not sure, sees an Egyptian mistreating one of his people, a Hebrew, and he intervenes and he kills that Egyptian, hides the body. But when he learns that the word has gotten out what he's done and he's going to have to face consequences for his action, he flees and goes into the wilderness. Now, if you read the text and what we read just uh, together just now, uh, Exodus 3, 1 is our first introduction of Moses as, a, as an adult. Uh, you think Moses settling in Midian and taking a wife and becoming a shepherd has happened over the course of days or weeks or months. But according to Acts chapter 7, this has happened over a period of 40 years. Moses kills a guy and goes into the wilderness. And 40 years later, God speaks to him, and begins to lay out, here's how I plan to use you. The answer to the people's prayer and groaning is taking his sweet time out in the wilderness with flocks of sheep. And next week, we'll read that story of the burning bush and God speaking, and we wonder, God, why didn't you speak up sooner? Why wait all these years? Well, we know that the answer to this question simply cannot be that God was aloof to the plight of his people. The text told us he heard, he looked, he was concerned about his people. The answer cannot be that God had just forgotten His plans or His promises. It says He remembered His covenant. Now, as as we examine the evidence and we think today, we come to a different conclusion. It's that God is utterly unhurried. Now, Genesis 1 tells us the story of God as the creator and the author of all of existence. And because God created everything... And because all art gives us some kind of window into the heart of the artist, the biological world tells us something about the God who made everything and thought that it was good. We know from the creation of biological gender that God loves both unity and diversity. With both male and female, God loves unity and diversity, that only together do they fully express the image of God. We know that God loves both a kind of order and also wildness. Almost everything that God creates is capable of generating more life such that the world can be teeming with new life. We know that God, in examining Genesis chapter 1 and looking at nature, we know that God loves the gift of seasons. And seasons themselves are a kind of temporal form of unity and diversity. Winter is different than spring, and spring is different than summer, and summer is different than autumn. There's a diversity to the seasons, but they're held in unity through this recurring pattern. And in nature and in our lives, sometimes it feels like one season will never end, but invariably, the next ultimately comes. The sun and the moon, according to Genesis 1, are given in part to mark sacred times and days and years. There are daily and weekly and annual rhythms of the rotation of the earth on its axis and the revolution of the earth around the sun. In the world of plants, we have different cycles and seasons, seasons of germinating and growing and bearing fruit and seasons of dormancy or seasons of dying. In the world of animals, there are seasons of gestation for reproduction. A chipmunk will cook in its mom's tummy for about 31 days. A human, the human gestation period is like 260 to 280 days. An elephant, well, his gestation period is between 620 and 680 days. That's a long pregnancy. God bless those moms. In our church, we have bakers and brewmasters who have perfected their craft uh, not only by picking the best ingredients, but also by learning, by in, learning to intuit and read the amount of time and heat required to get a loaf of bread or a tank of beer just right. The author of Ecclesiastes reflects on different times and seasons in a human's life. He says there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time of war, and a time of peace. All through creation, in lots of different ways, we see that God has created a world of time. And those whose whose world is, like, whose home is within the world that God made experience time as a central, fundamental, inescapable reality. I mean, none of us know any existence apart from space and time. But the God who created all things exists outside of space and is not bound by the time that he invented. Just beyond our comprehension, God operates outside of time. God is beyond time. And beyond the limits of our patience, God rarely accommodates our desire to act on accelerated timelines. I am probably one of three people in this room who know the comedian Emo Phillips, who I've probably quoted in like four sermons. Sue, so you know, you know Phillips, probably. Okay. He says, He has this prayer. He says, It's an ecumenical prayer that people of all faiths can pray. It's something like, God, please bend the laws of the universe for my convenience. <laughs> God rarely accommodates our desire to act on accelerated timelines. I'll give you an example. We read in Genesis 49 a couple of weeks ago how, in sometime like 2000 BC, God spoke prophetically through Jacob that through his son Judah's line, a king would come and the obedience of the nations would be his. And you think, great, he's speaking this word of prophecy. Surely, like Judah's going to see this happen in his lifetime. So when is the king coming? Five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Nope, 100 years? Nope, 500 years? Nope, A 1,000 years later, David is born as the son of Judah. But God gives promises to David. David, I'm going to establish an everlasting dynasty through your family line. You're, someone is going to come from you who's going to rule over all the nations of the world in eternity future. David's like, great, when's that going to happen? Five years? Ten years? Twenty-five years? Five hundred years? No, another thousand years until the birth of Jesus. Jesus comes, Jesus lives, this amazing birth, ministry, baptism... Uh, he has his crucifixion, his healings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, sending the Spirit, giving, the birthing the church, and promising to return. The first believers were like, great, when are you going to come back, Jesus? Five years, 10 years, 25 years, 500 years. Now, 2,000 years later, we're still waiting to see this promise fulfilled. By our standards, God's really slow. I think in God's standards, God is utterly unhurried. Uh, One of the epistle writers says, God is not slow in keeping his promises as some consider slowness. Instead, he's patient. He's patient. The the reality that God exists outside of time and space is difficult for me to understand. I'm a person who struggles to just make sense of how like, like changes in daylight savings works out. Or how going from one time zone to another, how all the math works out, it's a little bit beyond me. But it's like this. Imagine that you're standing in front of a river at the foot of a mountain. And all of the, the river is right there before you, but you can only see the part that's directly in front of you. So beyond the curves in either direction, you can't see. But what you can see is very, very Real. You hear the roar of the waters, you see the the life that's just teeming underneath the surface, you see everything that's happening all around it, it's very, very uh, real to you, it's all consuming, it's all you can see and all we know. And in life, we've come by our knowledge and our perspective honestly, but we have to recognize that our knowledge and our perspective are limited. But God, I think we we could imaginatively say, is not at the foot of the mountain, God is at the peak of the mountain. Of the mountain, seeing both the river's ending and the river's beginning, all of it is spread out before him. Our perspective is limited, but God's perspective is limitless. All of time stands before him. Now, this insight may hold a certain explanatory power for why God doesn't often operate in the timelines that we'd prefer, but it offers little comfort uh, to those who are waiting for redemption those who are waiting for that prayer request to be answered, for those who are currently in distress. And while the Exodus story itself is a central, specific story for the community of faith, it's also a paradigmatic story of all of humanity in, in, in injustice and bondage under oppression, waiting for full deliverance, waiting for ultimate justice, and waiting for better days to come as we we think about the reality that God is utterly unhurried, how can all of us who are living within space and time think well about God and the topic of time? I'm going to offer four uh, insights, four ways of thinking about this today. How can we think well about God and the topic of time? First, we do well to accept that God is okay with the current information imbalance. God is currently okay with the information imbalance that exists right now, that he knows everything and sees the whole river before him, and we know only what lies before our eyes. Living beyond time, there are things that God knows that are simply inaccessible to those who are living within time. And God appears to be perfectly okay with this. To my great frustration and yours, God appears to be perfectly okay with this imbalance. Have you ever been asked the question, if you could be told how you would die, would you want to know? There's a reason that we don't know. There's a reason that we don't know everything, and there's a benefit to not knowing. The mystery of the future is the conflict that moves the human story forward, that keeps things interesting. Interesting. And without this conflict, this core conflict of the information imbalance, without this mystery, life would be robbed of meaning. It's the adventure of seeking and finding. It's the highs and lows of the journey that posture us to grow. And you can pray and pray and pray till you get blue in the face, asking God for clarity, for him to bring you up on the mountain beside him and let all time be unveiled before your eyes too, but you do better to ask for courage. Courage to endure the uncertainty. Courage and patience. Because God appears perfectly okay in withholding full revelation of what's to come. How can we think well about God and time? First, uh, we accept that God is currently okay with the information imbalance. But second, remember that God does not leave us without signposts. Without signposts. Imagine how much more difficult this whole human experience would be. Imagine how much more difficult just faith would be if God had gave us nothing to go on. If we just received the natural world and natural revelation and that was it, there was no specific revelation If God hadn't called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we didn't have the Psalms, if we didn't have Jesus, if we didn't have the Spirit, if we didn't have the church, imagine how much more difficult this journey would be, bereft of the signposts that God has already given us. While God almost never tells us the full story in advance, God does give us pictures and impressions and promises. God doesn't leave us completely in the dark about his plans, or about himself. We have a lot to go on. As I think about the future, the the passages of Scripture that are in my back pocket that are helping me make sense of the present and hope for the future, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 21 and 22. Do I know how everything's going to shake out? No. Do I know well enough how to draw a detailed chart like some preachers on TV do? No. No. But we've been given pictures and promises and signposts pointing into the fog. He's not left us with no information. And though we have this massive gap between what he sees at the peak and what we see at the foot, because he's not left us without pictures and impressions and promises, there's the opportunity for hope. God's given us a cookie trail. He's given us signposts pointing into the fog. He's given us something to go on, something to hope for. And it keeps us sane. How do we think well about God and time? One, we remember God is okay with the current information imbalance. Two, we remember that God has not left us without signposts. And three, these factors combined, we embrace God has designed this environment for interaction with Him and formation for us. The information imbalance plus the signposts pointing into the fog create just the right environmental conditions for us to want to have a conversation with Him and for us to be shaped and formed. Now, because what we've learned through the signposts, through our own lived experience, that the character of God is good, We ought to think about our current information imbalance and the promises he's given us as the divinely ordained context for two things. One, for us to interact with God, and the imbalance, the gaps in our knowledge give us something to talk about. Don't interpret that as a way of saying that God was just really lonely and had to orchestrate it in such a way that you might want to talk to him. God is not lonely. God is eternally self-satisfied within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, united in community loving fellowship. But God, as the fountainhead of all life, was just delighted to invent co-regents, co-rulers, men and women made in His image, uh, growing into and capable of sufficient wisdom and courage to join Him in ruling over all creation. And God knows that to create men and women capable of ruling with Him over the cosmos takes time. It takes years of formation. And God wants to have the big and the little formative conversations with His people. And it's in talking with Him and time with Him that we're formed by Him. There's this information imbalance and also this... Like he's planted these seeds of promise just so that we'll interact with him in the tension. In the tension of what he's done and what he's promised to do, the tension of what he's done and what we're just dying for him to do, it creates the opportunity for intimacy. This was his design. So the information imbalance and his promises Create an environment for us to interact with Him, but second, it creates an environment for us to be shaped by Him. And I've identified four key ways that He's leveraging this environment to shape us. The first is through worship. Worship is the most telling and sure sign that the work of the enemy is crumbling within us. When we willfully worship, it's like we're undoing the effects of the fall doing what our forebears have failed to do. And to worship and to delight in God is our highest and ultimate calling as His people. To worship is to live in creation rightly ordered. In what ways is the Lord inviting fresh worship of you? Have you learned how to worship? Uh, Worth is just like worth-ship, ascribing worth, acknowledging to God, here's what you are worth to me and to all the world. Have you learned to worship? Are you learning to be a worshiper? It's one of his goals of the current environmental limitations that we would learn to worship. One of the second ways that the Lord shapes us given these current environmental limitations is in waiting. Waiting. To wait well is to accept that God leverages time as a central ingredient for our formation. Gosh, I wish you wouldn't. To wait well is to accept that God leverages time as a central ingredient for our formation. And in waiting well, we pray, Lord, work in me as I wait on you. That may be like the best thing that some of you hear waiting for, like, meeting a spouse, waiting for, like, good news on a pregnancy test, waiting for good news on the, in the job front, waiting, you know, waiting, waiting, waiting. So much of our life is waiting. And the pocket prayer might be, Lord, work in me as I wait on you. I sure wish you were, full, you were fulfilling all of your promises today, but even as I wait, would you form me, would you shape me, Would you mold me into the image of God? I wonder today, are you so fixated on God's plans for you, those destinations, that you're resisting God's work in you along the way? Are you thinking so much about that next good thing that might happen that you're actively resisting the good thing He's trying to do in you right now? God leverages this environment to shape us in learning to worship and in learning to wait well. Another thing that God uses to shape us under the current environmental limitations is in our work. God has designed you and me to take meaningful action, to make something of the world that he made, to steward our skills, to care for our own needs, and to provide for the needs of others. In a rhythm of weekly work and rest is something that God designed and God said was really, really important. Good. I wonder for you in thinking about your work, whatever that is, maybe it's as a middle school student or as a high school teacher or as like a, a health care worker or a stay-at-home parent, as you think about the meaningful action God has given you to take, have you invited God to not only shape and form you as you work but also to use your work as part of His work in the world? How might God be inviting you as part of your formation in the tension of being human to leverage your skills and vocation as a part of your Christian formation? God has designed this, inner, this environment to form us in learning to worship and to wait and to work well. But then finally, to watch. To watch. Uh, so has anybody ever been like a night watchman? Yeah, I don't know who would. Anybody? Okay? Okay, we've got one. All right. I'm really glad that someone's awake at night. I'm really glad that like when we set our security alarm at the end of the day, if like someone were to shatter our glass, I'm really glad that somewhere there's someone who's alert, who's paying attention and ready to dispatch help. I'm grateful for those who watch. For us to be watchmen and watch women as the people of God is to be people who are attentive and alert to the thing that God does want to do in real space and time. To watch us to hold on to hope that God's going to fulfill His promises. To watch us to be like Jesus who says, I only do what I see the Father doing. To watch us to be awake and alert and attentive to what God is doing in the world. And this is something that God wants us to do. Jesus tells numerous parables about this at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Like the, the, the virgins are waiting for the bridegroom or keeping your, keeping your wick lit and having oil in your candle. Are you aware and alert, watching for the good things that God is doing in the world? Are you so busy or preoccupied with your own thing or perhaps even with your own despair that you've given up hope and you've stopped looking? You're no longer being attentive and watching for what God is doing in the world. We need to embrace that God designed all of these environmental conditions, the current information imbalance, the promises that He's given us, as like central to our formation. He wants us to learn to worship. He wants us to learn to wait well. He wants us to learn to work. He wants us to be watchful. But I think one final way in which we can think well about God and the topic of time is to trust that God is guiding creation toward a good, good end. And by end, I don't mean, holy cow, the world's coming to an end. I mean a worthy destination. I mean a joy-filled consummation, the opening of a new chapter. Another way of saying this is as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 31, is that we can trust in believing that God is leading creation toward a good, good end. We can trust, truly and holistically trust, that our times are in his hands our times are in his hands there's a very real pressure that many of us feel to make a name for ourselves to make the most of the time that we have I chuckled at a tweet that I saved from a couple years ago it says time is the ultimate teacher unfortunately he kills all of his students Many of us feel uh, overwhelmed and a great deal of anxiety because we feel like we're back in high school and life itself is a timed test. We feel like we're behind. Behind what? I don't know. Wherever I'm supposed to be. And as a consequence of this, of feeling like our times are in our own hands, we are worried and hurried and afraid. But I wonder, how would someone exactly like you in your shoes and in your life operate if they really believed and understood that our times are in his hands? The psalmist says elsewhere in Psalm 31 that he's led us to a spacious place. As I was going to sleep last night, I was thinking about that image. A spacious place. There's room to relax. If our times are in his hands, there's breathing room. You're okay. My bishop, Todd Hunter, says, You're always safe in the kingdom of God. And I think that rhymes with this truth here that our times are in his hands. He understands what we're made of, that we're dust into dust that we will return. He understands how overwhelming the vista is before us, watching the rivers of life just rage and we feel like we're being tossed about. He understands. Our times are in His hands. The invitation today is to be mindful that God has designed these these limitations, these environmental limitations, to form us and to shape us according to His image. Therefore, we we would be wise to transition our thinking from God, give me clarity, 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 so I can control what I want to control, to Lord, give me the courage, the confidence, the patience to trust in You in the waiting. And help me to be relaxed And confident, even in really hard times, knowing that my times are in your hands. We stay hopeful and watchful because we remember how in real space and time, Jesus himself was born in a town, like a town like ours. A town that some people knew about but wasn't altogether important. God in Christ entered into real space and time. And because he's entered into time past, we know that the risen Christ is working and operating in time and space present. And will come in the age to come when Christ returns in real space and time to make all things new. And therefore, we have hope. And the meal that we're about to share together is the central meal of hope, this central signpost given to us of the memory of what God was willing to do for the world that He loved, how He was willing to not even hold back His Son for us. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's still His plan. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit. Enter space and time and intersect with us who are subject to time. Pour out your spirit on this bread and wine. Make it be so much more than just that for us, but a means by which we encounter the risen Christ, the living God who is outside of and the author of time. Anchor our hearts. Buoy our hope. Help us not to give into despair, but to trust that in reality... From the perspective of him who sits at the peak of the mountain and all of time is before him, you've led us into a spacious place. There's breathing room. We can trust you because our times are in your hands. Lord, you know the situation in the heart of every person here, and I pray that in your mercy you'd speak, giving hope and encouragement to those who wait. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.